As I said earlier, my name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane, and I'm glad to be with you this morning to preach as we continue in this sermon series, this message series called A New Thing, uh, where we have been looking at the way that God is doing a new thing here at Lover's Lane in our faith community, and also how God is doing a new thing through our individual lives as Jesus followers. And so my prayer is that um, you would sense God doing a new thing in you as we approach this next school year, this next year in the life of our church church. Um, Each week we've taken a look at one of the values that we've named as the Lover's Lane community, worship, learn, engage, and share. We've talked about worshiping and engaging, and today we talk about learning, learning a new thing. You know, it's interesting. I know that especially amongst my own generation, people of faith can be characterized and seen as um, overly rigid or stuck in their ways, stuck in the mud, even arrogant in their certainty of their beliefs. And sometimes that's a fair characterization. Maybe you've known someone like this before. Maybe you've been someone like this before. But I'm a Christian and, I, and I'm a follower of Jesus because I believe that my faith compels me to learn and compels me to engage my brain, not to shut it down. And so today I want us to talk about the relationship between faith and learning, and I want us to ask a central question that will guide us today. How can faith inspire us to learn a new thing? How can our faith, our following of Jesus, inspire us to learn a new thing? And to help us in this conversation, we're going to turn our attention to the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 3. Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 3, and you're welcome to open up your pew Bibles. I'm going to be reading from a slightly different translation this morning called the Common English Bible, and it's going to sound very similar, but some of the words may be a little bit different. And and this is the story of Jesus being visited by a man named Nicodemus. It's also the story in which we find what may be the great mountaintop moment in the New Testament when the Gospel of John says, in the voice of Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all who believed in him would not perish but would have eternal life. And this has become a centering verse and an amen verse for the church for the last 2,000 years. But this story is more than just a single line of scripture. In fact, today I want us to turn our attention to the person of Nicodemus himself. Because I think Nicodemus has something to teach us about being learners. Because he's a surprising character to show up and to call Jesus rabbi, teacher. With all of that in mind, let's prepare our hearts and our minds to hear the reading of God's word this morning that comes to us in Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. I invite you to rise as you're able in body and spirit for the reading of God's word this morning. It says, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, how is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. 
Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said, how are these things possible? Jesus answered, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The word of God for the people of God, let us say. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So let's talk about who Nicodemus is. It says that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a leader amongst the Pharisees at that. And later in the Gospel of John, we'll understand that that's true. We see that at work. Nicodemus is held in esteem even amongst this community of Pharisees. So he's probably an older man, maybe in his 60s, let's say. We know he's a Pharisee. And since today is all about learning, I don't want to assume that you know anything about Pharisees. Pharisees, they were the sect in the Jewish community that came about, we're not entirely sure, but the best guess is somewhere around the third century BCE. And they, and they, they were formed as a response to the Hellenization or the Greek culture influencing the Jewish community. Now, the Jewish people were very clear of their identity. They valued their history and their tradition and their identity. And so when they sensed that the Greek culture was beginning to influence them more and more in the way that they thought and the way that they understood the world and the way that they lived their lives, this group of people were formed called the Pharisees, and they became the defenders of the Jewish identity. They became defenders of the Jewish tradition of the Jewish faith in the face of this Greek cultural influence. And so a lot of times we'll hear the Pharisees talked about as though they are this one-note bad guy group, right? Oh, those Pharisees always trying to persecute Jesus. But that's not entirely fair because the Pharisees were started with good intentions. They wanted to see their people thrive. They wanted to see their faith defended. They wanted to study the scriptures. They were highly intellectual. They valued Bible study. They valued an understanding of their law, even though their understanding was not the one that Jesus would later preach. But they took this good intention and they took it to an extreme. They took it too far. And what developed amongst the Pharisees over the, over the couple of centuries preceding Jesus was this worldview that became increasingly narrow and increasingly rigid so that you had to follow these rules and you had to check these boxes and you had to fit our standards for God to love you. And that's who Nicodemus is. He's a Pharisee. 
That's his worldview. That's his ideology. It's narrow. It's rigid. And in fact, he's a leader among them. So he's not only been trained in this way of thinking, he's now a professor of it. Isn't it surprising that this is the man who approaches Jesus in the dead of night and calls him rabbi? I mean, how many 60-plus-year-old experts in their field that are very set in their ways seek out 30-year-olds who are turning tables over in temples saying, can you teach me something? In Nicodemus' eyes, Jesus is just this upstart kid, I'm sure. Why in the world would he seek him out? There's something special about Nicodemus, something that's unlike the other Pharisees. He is seeking out this young man who he says, we recognize there are miracles you're performing that only God could do. So I think about Nicodemus and just the character of who he is, the fact that he approached Jesus at all, the fact that he called him rabbi, the fact that he wanted to learn something new. And I don't know about you, but so often we go to God looking for answers, but my God talks in questions. Does God ever speak in questions to you? Does God ever put a question on your heart that just, who won't let go? This week I was thinking about Nicodemus and I heard God asking me a question and he just wouldn't let it go. And the question was this, Scott, knowing what you know about Nicodemus, he had every reason not to go to Jesus. Scott, if Nicodemus can learn a new thing, what's your excuse? If Nicodemus can learn a new thing, what's your excuse? He had every reason to discount Jesus. He had every reason to stay stuck in his ways. He had every reason to turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to this new young teacher but he listens. And so, Scott, what's your excuse? Church, if Nicodemus can learn a new thing, what's our excuse? So let's talk about what Jesus teaches and let's talk about what this new thing is. Now, the first thing I want to say is that when Jesus begins to speak to Nicodemus, he says, you, right? He talks to Nicodemus and he says, you, a lot. But he's not just talking to Nicodemus. When he says the word you, he's not saying what we might think he's saying. Unfortunately, we don't have enough Texans that translate the Bible. That's a real shame. Because the you that Jesus is using there in the Greek is a plural you. The correct translation would be y'all. Right? When he talks to Nicodemus, he's not saying, I assure you, unless someone is born anew. He's saying, I assure y'all, unless someone is born anew. Does that mean Nicodemus had a whole bunch of people with him? Not necessarily. See, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, but he's not really just talking to Nicodemus. He's talking through Nicodemus to the Pharisees. He's not just confronting Nicodemus, the man. He's confronting the worldview and the ideology that Nicodemus shares with so many other members of the Jewish community. So he's talking about y'all, all of you, the way that you understand your life, the way that you understand your world. When he begins to talk about being born again, a lot of us understand what Jesus means by that because maybe we've been raised in the faith or maybe we just understand Christian lingo. This is a phrase that we're very familiar with today in the 21st century in Dallas. And you might think that Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. You might think that this is a totally new concept to him, but it's not. The Pharisees believed that in order to become a part of the Jewish family, Right? And, they, and they, when they talked about family, they meant like literally there's this line from Abraham that we all belong to. And if you want to be part of this family, you have to be born again. But the way that they went about it was different than the way that Jesus taught it. See, the Pharisees believed to be born again, you had to be baptized. They agreed on that. 
But then they had to be, the men had to be circumcised. And that was the way that you gained entrance into the family of faith in the Jewish community. You and all the men in your household had to be circumcised. This was a marking of the covenant that went all the way back to Abraham. This was critically important to them as they studied and read the scriptures. But Jesus says to be born again, we have to be baptized. And then he says, born of the spirit. Wait a second. This is not as easy to control and contain. This is not something physical like circumcision. This is something spiritual. In fact, the word for spirit that Jesus uses in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same word as wind. And that's why Jesus says this spirit is not something you can control or contain. You know, the wind is a power that we can harness for a time maybe, but have you ever tried to bottle the wind? You're going to have a hard time. The wind is a powerful movement. It doesn't care about boundaries or borders. It will not be controlled. It goes where it wants to, and it blows on whoever it wants to. And Jesus says that's the way that God's love works. That's the way this inclusion in the family takes place. It's wherever and whenever and however God wants it. By emphasizing this work of the Spirit, this uncontrollable wind... Jesus is confronting this rigid and narrow mindset that Nicodemus and the Pharisees shared, that being saved was about a checklist and about a rule sheet. He's confronting this limited understanding of God's love, and he's revealing to Nicodemus that God's love is so much greater and so much grander than he could ever possibly understand. Capturing God's love is like capturing the wind. You can't put God in a box. And so then by the time that Jesus shares with him the, the famous verses of John three sixteen and 17, you know, we hear these verses today, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and we will nod our heads and we'll say amen, because that makes a lot of sense to us in the 21st century in Dallas, Texas, right? That makes a lot of sense to us after 2,000 years of Christian tradition and theology, but I want you to put yourself in Nicodemus's shoes I want you to sit in Nicodemus' place and hear Jesus saying to you, God so loved the world. That sounds nice to us. But if you're Nicodemus and you're a Pharisee and your whole life has been about defending the Jewish identity and the Jewish faith and the Jewish people, and you're living under an oppressive rule from a foreign empire, and you feel like it's us against the world. Who's the bad guy in that situation? The world. And who does God say that God loves? The world. Jesus says, God so loved the world. You can almost hear Nicodemus' jaw hit the ground. What? That he gave his only begotten son. And then Jesus goes on to say, so that everyone who believes in him, now that's hard to contain, belief, that's all it takes, not circumcision, just belief. Everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And still Jesus isn't done. He says God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, or in other translations, to condemn the world, but that the world, the world might be saved. This is a complete reversal of the way Nicodemus had been raised and had professed to think and believe. This isn't just a little bit of a shift. This is a 180. 
And it can be easy for us to look at the Pharisees and go, God, I can't believe they never understood it. I mean, I'm so glad I'm here in church today. I'm so much better than those Pharisees. But here's the deal. One of the other reasons I'm a Christian, one of the things that I love about my walk with Jesus is that Jesus challenges me in the same way that Jesus challenges Nicodemus. And if we think we can follow Jesus and put Jesus into a box and put the Holy Spirit into a box and put God's love into a box, we are dead wrong. Because when we follow Jesus, we're going to be asked to love people that we don't want to love and to have grace for people that we don't want to have grace for. And to forgive people that we really don't want to forgive and to include people we don't want to include and to pull up a chair for someone that we don't want to pull up a chair for. And if you haven't felt that in your own life, I would challenge you to say maybe you need to walk a little bit closer to Jesus. Because I guarantee you there's somebody that you're holding out on. One of the things I love about my walk with Christ is that it challenges me on an almost daily basis. I need that kind of challenge in my life. I don't need a Jesus that looks like me. I don't need a Jesus that thinks what I think and believes what I think and just regurgitates Scott back to me. We live in a season and an era of confirmation bias and and living in our bubbles and getting a carefully curated community that just agrees with everything that we think. And Lord, that's not the purpose of a walk with Christ. It's meant to be challenging. And so this week I heard another question from God and this one was really annoying because he really wouldn't let it go. Has God ever annoyed you with a question? Oh, I heard God saying to me, when's the last time, Scott, that Jesus changed your mind? When is the last time that Jesus changed your mind? Because I sure think I got it figured out most of the time. Anybody else a know-it-all in the room? It's okay to confess and repent, church. When is the last time that Jesus changed your mind? So here's the interesting thing about Nicodemus' story is that, you know, Jesus keeps teaching him for a few more verses, but then the story just ends. The scene just ends. There's, there's no response from Nicodemus. He doesn't cry out and say, you know, oh, Lord, I believe everything you've just shared with me. It, you know, it could have said that, but it doesn't. It doesn't tell us that Nicodemus walked away believing all these things. could have said that. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that Nicodemus fell on his knees and, and asked to be a disciple. could have said that. doesn't say that. It just ends. Maybe Nicodemus is speechless. Maybe he's conflicted. Maybe he's convicted. He's certainly challenged. But that's not the end of Nicodemus' story in the Gospel of John. Nicodemus appears three times in John's Gospel. The first is when he goes to Jesus to learn a new thing. He walks away, and we're not sure how that resolves In chapter 7, he appears for a second time. This is a scene where Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. It's it's like this council of Pharisees that are there to judge Jesus like a trial. And, And in this trial, it's kind of a circus because Jesus isn't able to actually defend himself. The Pharisees are understandably unhappy with his teaching and his preaching and the kind of love that he's professing. And so they're just kind of railing against him and they're shoving this trial through. And then Nicodemus stops it down and says, wait, you are not letting him defend himself. He needs to be able to speak. Now, this tells us that Nicodemus was a leader amongst the Pharisees, because I don't know about you, there's very few people who could walk into the Supreme Court and say, hey, y'all hold on a second, right? That's kind of what Nicodemus does. Now, what's interesting about this scene is that Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus' defense by saying, listen to him, I believe everything he's saying. He doesn't say, listen to this man, he is the Messiah. 
He doesn't say any of that. He just says, you're not letting him talk. He deserves a fair trial. It's interesting because we still are not sure what Nicodemus makes of Jesus. We're still not sure if he's learned this new thing or not. He's kind of this curious defender of Jesus' right to speak. But then we meet Nicodemus for a third time. This time, very late in the gospel, in chapter 19, after the crucifixion. And in all four gospels, there's this man named Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea is famous because he's the one that buried Jesus. All four gospels tell us he's the one that buried Jesus. But in John's gospel, there's another man who helps him. Do you know who that was? Nicodemus. And in case you're wondering what Nicodemus thinks of Jesus now, after these years of witnessing Jesus' mystery or ministry, after these years of wrestling and, and chewing on this knowledge that Jesus has revealed to him, what is it that Nicodemus thinks of Jesus? Well, the Gospel of John makes it clear. It says that Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds. That's Roman pounds. In modern-day measurements, it would be about 75 pounds of fragrances and oils to anoint Jesus' body in that burial. 75 pounds. Church, if you're wondering if that's a lot, yes, that's a lot. In fact, it's so much that it tells us two things about Nicodemus. Number one, it tells us that he must have had the means to purchase a whole lot because that is an extravagant amount of fragrances and oils. The second thing it tells us is that Nicodemus believed Jesus was king because that is a royal burial. You would only use that amount of fragrances and oils for a king. So we know what Nicodemus thinks of Jesus. We know that Nicodemus serves him humbly as his Lord. The Gospel of John has this story woven through it about Nicodemus where at first he's presented as this, you know, interested, willing listener. And next we're, he's shown to be this curious defender, but lastly we see him as a humble servant of his Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And the story of Nicodemus watching his growth is a grace to me. And I hope it's a grace for you because I read the Gospels so often and Jesus will encounter someone and, and he'll teach them something radically new and they just immediately get it. And it says they immediately came to faith or they immediately rose up and followed him and they immediately were a disciple. And like that sounds so cool, but I don't know about you, sometimes I need time to think. And there have been times when Jesus has encountered me in my life where I have not been that quick to come to faith. I've not been that quick to follow. I need a minute to process. I need a minute to think things over. And Nicodemus is an example of that working out really, really well. I think it's better that Nicodemus took his time to live out an authentic faith than to jump at a hollow one. Nicodemus is a grace for me. And as I thought about Nicodemus' character this week, what, what it was about him that I really admire and what I hope to uplift this morning. I thought of a word that honestly, I almost didn't even write down in my sermon because I thought, ah, that's weird. That's not really a nice thing to say about somebody. If you call someone this, it's not a compliment. And that word is soft. But I want to redeem that character. 
I think Nicodemus is soft. Now, when we say soft, when we call someone soft, we hear that as they're weak-willed or they're, they're mushy or they're not that tough or they're not very resilient. They're soft, right? If someone calls you soft, it's not a compliment. But see, I think Nicodemus is soft in a good way. I think he's soft in a good way. Today, we're, we're talking about uh, celebrating the back-to-school season And I was thinking about soft in a good way, and it brought something to my mind that I couldn't let go, and and it was this. Y'all ever play with this? Play-Doh. I mean, play, the whole room starts chuckling, because it's just joy in a a can, right? I mean, it's just, you put Play-Doh in front of a three-year-old or a 93-year-old, you're going to have fun, right? Everybody loves Play-Doh. In fact, if you don't love Play-Doh, I don't know if there's hope for you. I mean, if you don't like Play-Doh, you probably don't like Jesus or America or apple pie either. So, I mean, Play-Doh is just so easy to love. And you, what do we love about Play-Doh? It's, it's, it is mushy, and you can form it and roll it around and make it anything. I would always make snakes as a kid just because it's easy, you know. And then if I got bored with snakes, I'd just make a snail. You know, that's what i do. See, snake to snail, easy. My poor daughter is so tired of me making snakes and snails. I'm like, that's what I got, kid. I'm sorry. But we love Play-Doh, and we love it because we can, we can smush it around. We can form it into anything we want to. It, it, it's just so much fun. But do you remember being a kid and you, you go to play with your Play-Doh and you realize that you left the cap off the night before, the lid off? Oh, I heard some people, oh, you're going back to that place. Oh, no. And what do you end up with? Now, see, this was, it's perfect example. This was actually a person this morning at one point. And I, I left it out last night. It's my daughter's pink glitter Play-Doh. She's going to kill me. I left it out last night. And, and what happens when you leave it out? It gets stiff. And you can't, I mean, I could try all day long, and I couldn't make this into anything new. It's, it's crumbly, it's rigid, and honestly, it's not that much fun, right? What is it that makes the Play-Doh this way? It's because when we leave it out, it gets what? It gets dry. It gets dried out. You know, there's a reason, I think, that Jesus teaches Nicodemus and, and couches this teaching in conversation about baptism by water and the Holy Spirit. And it's because I think Jesus understands something about Plato. <laughs> it's the moisture that makes it fun. It's the moisture that keeps it from getting dried out. It's the moisture that makes it malleable and shapeable. It's the moisture that makes it teachable. It's the baptismal waters of the Holy Spirit or baptismal waters in the Holy Spirit that do the same thing for us. I think Jesus knows that a baptized life is a life of learning. And to be born of the Holy Spirit is to be open to reshaping. And let's be honest, when we get dried out, we get rigid, we can get kind of crumbly, and let's be honest, we're just not that much fun. So church this morning, I want to ask you, if maybe you need a little bit of water and a little bit of Holy Spirit in your life. I know I do. See, I can't do anything to fix this Play-Doh, but God can. A little bit of moisture, a little bit of Holy Spirit goes a long way. In your pews in front of you, you'll see a card. It looks like this. It says a new thing on it. Go ahead and pull it out. Take a look at it. On the back of the card, there's a number of ways in which you can respond to God doing a new thing in your life. And I trust that everybody in this room, God is doing something new in your life right now. Maybe what you need 
in your life right now is a little bit of water and a little bit of Holy Spirit. Next week, we're going to be celebrating a new thing by receiving people with the sacrament of baptism, by professions of faith, joining in membership with the church. But in the Methodist church, we also do something called the remembrance of a baptism. Because we only baptize once in the Methodist church. But we know that there are times when we need to be reminded that we've been claimed by God. And that we've chosen to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And maybe we just simply need a little bit of water and a little bit of Holy Spirit in our life as a reminder that God is still shaping and molding us. So I want to I challenge and encourage you to fill out this card, to find yourself. And maybe it's, maybe it's not remembering your baptism or, or becoming baptized for the first time. But you see there's other options there too. Growing in your commitment to attend worship or engaging with your community or learning through small groups or giving generously or sharing God's love with someone you know. I would challenge us that every one of us can find ourselves on that card somewhere. In a moment, we're going to receive our offering and you can turn in your card at that time or if you'd like to, you can turn it in at the end of worship. We'll have ushers in the back of the room ready to receive your cards then. Church, Jesus knew that the waters of baptism and the Holy Spirit make us soft, but in a really good way. So may we be soft in the image of Nicodemus so that God's loving hands can form us and shape us and mold us in the people that we were created to be. And let's be honest, it's more fun this way. Amen.